0: Hi, my name is Amy. and my name is James and this is How I learned to Love Shrimp, a podcast about promising ways to help animals and build the animal advocacy movement. In this episode we talk to Emre about his experience of co-founding the first organisation dedicated to supporting animals in Turkey and specifically navigating cage-free campaigning in this region. Emre talks us through their learnings, a real must listen for anyone working in or wanting to work on cage-free. Please let us know what you think and share with anyone you think could be interested to hear. We'd also love for you to subscribe to get the latest episodes and to see some reviews of the podcast to help us spread the word about the important work of our guests.
1: So we're joined today by Emre Kaplan, who's the executive director of Farms Animal Protection Association in Turkey, who are currently campaigning to end the caged systems in egg production and improve the welfare standards in aquaculture. So thanks, Emre. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Welcome. Um, amazing. Well, first question, we just do a bit of an icebreaker. And we're wondering if you personally received 50,000 uh, US dollars, how would you spend this to effectively help animals?
2: Uh, so currently there are a couple things that I would like to see more of in Turkey, which is first. We still have funding gaps for our corporate campaigns. Uh, Currently, we campaign against a major retailer, and uh, we still have some funding gaps to fund it. Secondly, I think I would like to see extensive, very detailed opinion polling on uh, attitudes to animals in Turkey. That is something I definitely want to see, and uh, we need more data on. Uh, We are currently just going by intuition. Which is not ideal. Okay. Uh, sure. Thirdly, since this is a individual fund, I think there are some activists that in work in Turkey and whose work I would like to support uh, in a more relaxed, no strings attached way, and see how things are going. So uh, these would be three things I think
1: uh, I will spend the money on. Cool. Well, then focusing on. Your organization, so Farm Animal Protection Association Turkey. Do you want to give us a short overview of the kind of programs you do and your main areas of work? Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, as Farm
2: Animal Protection Association, we have been running a cage-free campaign since two thousand eighteen, uh, which basically uh, runs corporate campaigns against companies to end the use of cage in their supply chains and. We use similar methods uh, to what other people do in other countries, just a bit more watered down to have extra legal precautions. And we also have recently started uh, in 2021 our fish welfare work, which aims to first identify what we can do for fish in Turkey, but also uh, get it done. This wasn't our initial plan, but just we built. Reputation with some major retailers, and one of them was uh, the largest fish retailer in Turkey, and they reached out to us. Okay, this uh, we want to do more for animals. Just recommend us what we can do. And, right. Wow, it's such enthusiasm. <laughs> so Let's see. Fish fish seems to be pretty important, and uh, because there was a low hanging fruit, we were like, okay, we need to get serious about this and identify what can be done for the fish and even if it is just this one single company, this, it's still 10 million fish per year that is being affected. So we have some initial commitment, but we intend to improve it as we gain further knowledge about what is feasible and what can be done. There is currently a commitment for stocking density and also stun slaughter, but uh, I think it can still be improved.
0: Wow. And did that did that cause your you to need to expand the team? I think acting on something that seems like a really promising area to pursue. We know there's other organizations already working on fish welfare. Mm-hmm. So it seems logical um, to move in that direction, especially when a retailer is, is showing interest. Has that kind of driven a sense of the organization needing to expand? Um, we know you've you know grown quite quickly in a short space of mm-hmm. time. Was that largely to do with the decision to start working on, on fish welfare? as well
2: yeah that explains some of it the, That work is still very experimental sure i think uh, at least not every and not everything can be experimental either the country <laughs> shouldn't be experimental or the method shouldn't be experimental or the team shouldn't be experimental something should have track records and mm. <laughs> currently in turkey and also fish welfare is quite new so i'm quite cautious sure. in that our team working on this is quite small. Uh, We're working with still some part-time advisors and contractors, like academic advisors. But uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, that is an obvious low-hanging fruit there. And we wanted to work on this. And I think our general growth strategy is, uh, to recap a little bit how we came to found the organizations, is just try things and if they work well and We feel like there is something else also that can be done. We expand a little bit and see how it goes. In initially we weren't even uh, paid for this and me and my co-founder were initially more effective altruists and then got into Animal Cause. My co-founder kept organizing uh, fundraisers for Against Malaria Foundation every year. And then he was like, okay, this is a middle income country. We are never going to raise a lot of money for this. It's, it's mm-hmm. just not our comparative advantage. I need to find something else. And he was quite impressed by the success of cage free campaigns uh, at that time in around 2017 I reached out to the League, asking like, how did you guys do this stuff? And uh, they gave him advice and some campaigning manuals and so on. And later on, it was just volunteer work for two years, which was successful, and we said, oh, this is successful, let's do some more. And then we got more Mm. commitments and quite a lot of public interest. And so, uh, cautiously adding up more stuff and stuff as long as we stay uh, cost-effectivism per animal-affected per dollar amount. This is basically Mm. our strategy for growth. Mm.
1: Very cool. And and how did it go from being a volunteer organization to paid staff? Did you have a funder reach out and be like, we want to do this work full time? we already working on it full time. Or yeah? how did that transition happen?
2: Yeah, I think this is important to emphasize. Thanks for asking this question. Uh, I think for, for people from developing countries, you don't even have vision about what things are doable and what are the opportunities in front of you, even if you see them. Like it's it never occurred to us to apply to I don't know animal welfare fund grant or Humming Alliance grant or anything like that even though we know that those opportunities were available it were they were just for some other people for not for us it oh, to really? um, individual founder to privately reach out to us oh I I want to support work in developing countries like would you be interested in this and uh, we were like. Okay, if they're reaching out to us, let's apply what is to lose. I think if that didn't happen, we might not have started this work. So it is important to proactively reach out to potential activists in uh, developing countries because uh, they might not apply to you at all. Mm.
0: What do you think is the main reason for that, Emre? Do you feel like you, you didn't feel established enough to take on a grant or it felt like um, you needed like training to accompany the money? Was there a particular reason that you felt uh, perhaps unable to apply for those types of opportunities?
2: I think I never felt I was that person, as in uh, not the person building the organization, neither my founder. Like These grants were more for established Uh, organizations and uh, people that really are animal people but you become animal people by your behaviors you start doing animal (laughs) work and you become animal people but uh, I don't know as I said mm, I think it's similar for many things about the vision like many opportunities they're just there some people have some friends around them who apply to them, which makes them apply to them as well. If there is no one doing this kind of thing around you, not in your network, then you don't feel like it is an opportunity. Even though you see them, it just feels Mm -hmm. like something some strangers, alien people do. Uh, I
1: think (laughs) it's a similar case for us. Mm. Very cool.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: In terms of uh, your work, now your team, so how big is it? And like roughly how much time or energy you guys spend on the various different activities you guys do
2: so it's i think 12 full-time equivalent people uh, in the team two of them are exclusively on fish welfare work and i think i would say two of them are exclusively working on cage free and the rest is supporting the organization For Mm. both departments, both fish welfare and cage free, and communications and HR and uh law and this kind of stuff is the rest of the team. And volunteer support, Mm. etc.
1: Nice, very cool. So, and and the cage free campaign is the one that's been running for the longest time, right? Called Mm cafes and yeah. You you were saying you've you've had quite a lot of success. Can you share in terms of like kind of how that's gone in terms of gathering commitments and how yeah. You can share
2: any any of that work. Yeah, uh, it was pretty successful in getting commitments and affecting animals. We currently have commitments from uh, fifth and sixth largest retailers in Turkey for cage free commitments. To be honest, these commitments are nothing compared to the success achieved in South America, but compared mm-hmm. to other. Uh, Countries that have similar scores in Freedom House and so on um, compared to spending we made. uh, I think there has been good progress. And we ourselves got commitments from more than 40 brands in Turkey. Let's say 30 to be cautious. And these will affect one and a half million animals in some. The yeah. commitments we have gotten uh, and these do not include the commitments that we received from global campaigns against global companies in turkey these are just the stuff we did exclusively ourselves yeah. and uh, for the fish i think we got commitments that is expected to
1: affect 10 million animal per year wow wow
0: congratulations
1: that's very amazing no, it's, yeah. it's like yeah. a million fish helped per person per year. That's already a pretty good place to be. <laughs> yeah, let's see if it will
2: replicate and go on because the that retailer was the largest fish retailer. But still uh, pretty happy about what they got there.
0: Yeah, definitely. And do you think this the scale then, I guess I would probably class that as quite rapid from 2017 to now 12 full-time equivalent. Do you think, again judging by how you spoke about the original grants and not feeling um feeling like you needed external influence to apply for that type of funding was it the same for the scaling did you feel like there was encouragement and uh, opportunities for funding in order to advance that that scale of the organization or did you um feel as though at that point internally that was just the right way to go was there any influence there as well
2: Yeah, there are several things I want to say on this. Um, First, uh, I think the funders are pretty reticent in what they think about organization in general. I don't know if it's to avoid being like colonialist funders from Western countries meddling with the work of uh, people in developing countries. Maybe that is because that, maybe because they don't want to micromanage, maybe because they don't have time at all to comment on these things. But uh, they don't say anything at all. It's just uh, you figure things out on your own and do your own plans, and which is a little bit something I have suspicions about. I think, especially because our work is very public-facing or uh, engages with important stakeholders such as the executives of the companies. I think like we should have more training in advance because our work builds reputation. But anyway, this an aside. This is the first thing to mention. Second, um, I think another thing I want to point out here was initially I was very stressed out about securing funding and uh, trying to prove our worth by getting important commitments in short amount of time. I think that was a mistake, at least for for 3 for more experimental work. Uh, maybe that's not the case, but currently my sense of Funders is that they're willing to fund experimental projects for small amounts of time, maybe three years. That small is still a long time, like two years, three years. I think they're tolerating funding some new work, even if they don't see immediate results in terms of animals impacted. So Mm -hmm. I think initially I could focus more on uh, doing more foundational work, like talking to lots of people and engaging with all the stakeholders in small sizes without uh, trying to get a commitment from a company as soon as possible. I think that is something people should be more aware of. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, in our decision making about growth, it's more about like, we were missing out a lot of opportunities in the beginning, as in Lots of journalists want to speak, there are lots of volunteer applications and uh, there are many campaigns we could run, and so on and so forth. We had to refuse interviews, we couldn't invest in some of the relationships we could invest in. And I was always thinking like, okay, if there was someone else there, there is still a low hanging fruit that could make use of this, or for example a company reaches out to make a fish welfare commitment, but you have no one specialized on this and you suddenly have to drop your other work and uh, research what is best for fish and so on. So as opportunities arise, we're like, okay, we need that kind of person in the team as well. Uh, And we add up as we go. And so far, the cost effectiveness of the organization hasn't been uh, hampered. So, as long as things go, I think this is a good way to grow the organization. One regret I have, though, is uh, initially I thought a lot about the position first and trying to find a person for that position and just making a job posting and hiring the best person possible that we could find. But I think uh, I could tolerate not hiring a person at all uh, more if there wasn't a really Uh, candidates with the bright fit for the organization in terms of skills and competencies. I think you shouldn't be hiring someone just because you posted the job application especially in the very early (laughs) stages of the organization Mm. because the uh, the early team is very crucial and determines the future of the organization. They have very uh, long-term impact on the organization. So I think I would still err towards hiring more slowly than I did uh, after this experience.
1: Interesting.
0: These are great. Thank you so much for your openness. I feel like, um, yeah, as a movement, sometimes maybe we're hesitant to share mistakes and learnings. And I feel like actually some of the conversations we have around them are the most valuable, um, particularly around how we can communicate more effectively. Um, I really appreciated your candidness about the the funding and the opportunities and perhaps feeling pressured to get commitments when you could have been a bit more experimental. So I think actually there's a lot to unpack um, in mm-hmm. that segment just there about um, how we can be more clear as a movement and help or- new organizations in particular um, mm-hmm. to learn how to scale more effectively and without that sense of pressure.
1: Yeah on the hiring, I'm curious. H- how much time do you think you spent personally on hiring, like in the in the beginning year or two? Do you think that was like your main focus, or, or do you think you should have focused more on that relative to doing the campaigns themselves?
2: Mm. Um, they were not our main focus, I think. Um, but that was also because I think we were lucky in having a network of competent people in Turkey. Uh, so it was easier to find right people in most cases. For some positions, we had to seek out a wider range of applications because we couldn't find a more suitable person from our own network. So in those cases, um, I think we could invest more time in uh, hiring proactively. And also just, uh, I also wish that maybe I started a little bit more about Just explaining things and building a movement in Turkey uh, rather than immediately trying to get cage-free commitments. Because Mm. when you campaign, it is like an election campaign, like political parties in election campaigns just try to appeal to mainstream as much as possible. And you try to do that too, uh, but like be also in effective animal advocacy space, have a huge, vast literature, so many ideas, so thought-provoking ideas. And when you're campaigning, you don't discuss all of this because it's all about finding the common ground and uh, getting people to your side and so on. So I think um, it would be very valuable to uh, just distribute these ideas and see which people are naturally inclined to agree with them and uh, identify individuals with high potential to uh, agree with your theory change, be interested in this kind of work. Like case-free work is a way to do that as well uh, because it will bring in lots of people to your organization. People will be interested in it and you will get loads of volunteer applications and these volunteers can be your future hires. But yeah. um, in the beginning we didn't invest in training of those volunteers just giving them out the materials and exposing them to ideas. I I wish we did that more and that would really help with our hiring and this seems to be a successful way other successful organizations did and we didn't. We just hosted job applications
1: and uh, evaluated who came. You said maybe early on actually funders are like fairly flexible that they can grant up to like two to three years and they don't expect immediate returns if it's a new organization you said maybe you would have spent more energy on organizational kind of like growth Mm -hmm. and whether all the various things that entails and how do you feel about that now i guess do you feel like you're more established so you can you can actually kind of actually focus more on building your team and your organization rather than getting more um i guess direct commitments and how do you balance that work nowadays
2: yeah, to uh, put an emphasis on the thing I previously said, I think uh, the work I mentioned is cage-free work. is not very experimental. So oh. funders are more willing to fund this for two years or three years, whereas for more experimental work, this might not be the case. I only know the cage-free side of the things. But apart from that, uh, balancing organizational needs with campaigning, I think I'm currently spending more of my time on uh, organizational needs than campaigning. Like I'm glad that I could transfer the part about campaigning to someone else who's currently more competent at campaigning at me and <laughs> you know, campaigning than I am. So uh, we're willing to have good progress on this, and I can currently more imagine how we are going to build an organization that in the long run will have the highest impact for animals, not just immediate campaigning results but what are the needs for animal advocacy space in turkey and how we are best uh positioned to fulfill them i think this is where my most of the time goes to currently
0: and you said initially that there was a funding gap currently in the corporate relations work can you speak more to that perhaps and what it is that you're missing currently how are you looking to grow or sustain the organization
1: yeah
2: it is um just we made several grant applications I and mean, in one of them we still got a grant but it was much lower amount than uh, we applied for so we ended up with uh some funding gap and i think other founders would be willing to fund it as well it's just now more difficult to apply for a second time but anyway uh <laughs> it's just we have a campaign and we would like to use more money on it because uh, it's a rather large retailer and mm. for that corporate campaign, you could make use of more innovative tactics that not, uh, might require more money or have more uh, media campaign with the funding required. I think it's mainly that kind of spending, not not something very experimental or exciting, but mm. <laughs> uh, things that might get immediate results.
1: And maybe just actually taking a broad uh Step back and think about like the farm animal movement in Turkey and also how animals are treated in, in Turkey. What what is like the state of kind of animal consumption and like animal welfare in in Turkey? Like how, kind of how bad is it? How how big is it? If you kind of share those kind of things,
2: currently there are a billion and two hundred million broiler chickens slaughtered per year and around a hundred ten million egg laying chickens per year and most of them almost all of them are uh, the most intensely confined industrial systems for the fish i think they are one of the largest fish producers in europe uh though not in the world i think they're either the largest or second largest fish producer uh, in aquaculture in europe and uh there is no pork so there are no pigs uh either that's uh, always a difference in Islamic countries hmm. and the state of the moment is so we have this legislation which might be more advanced than many Western countries which is this is forbidden to kill cats and dogs uh, whereas in many Western companies uh, countries they go to shelters and if they are not adopted they are euthanized or killed so the people in Turkey are pretty shocked by that situation in Europe they're like wow they he thought you were developed countries. But anyway, I think because of this, there's there are lots of stray animals in the streets and there are lots of people taking care of these cats and dogs and they form natural networks of animal advocates. And I think there is a mm. large, uh, though uh, very conflicted movement of for cats and dogs. And they had a demonstration with, uh, almost 10,000 people in 2013, I think. Wow. Uh, that, that is a strong movement. It is just uh, so much infighting and division. That, that is their problem. And there is that. And farm animal movement, I think the regulations we have are just adopted from the European Union legislation and regulations. We just copy them in their entirety without changing a word except changing their deadlines, uh, the deadlines get expanded and extended over and over again like for example uh, Turkey was going to transition to enriched furnished cages uh, in 2015 then the deadline got delayed to 2023 and uh, recently they delayed it again to 2026 or something. so wow. we because this legislation was just adapted from, Europe and there was an industry pushback against them. Uh, they keep getting pushed back and back and someone needs to do a counter pressure to really keep them in their place. Mm. Uh, though we are not focusing on this because we're like, maybe we can transition to cage-free directly rather than having to go through this loop of furnished cages, but maybe this decision is wrong, uh, but this is currently not our area of focus. Mm. and. The farm animal protection movement, there are no welfare organizations at all, none. Uh, I think the earliest welfare campaign I could identify was by Greenpeace in 2017 against industrial uh, chicken breeding. It was a mixture of health and animal welfare and environmental campaign. I think that was the first welfare campaign that I could see. And... They kept it for only two years, and after that, no welfare campaigns at all. Um, Wow! Which I want to say because I think many people invest in companies, uh, countries, just take too many things for granted. Like I'm reading Tom Regan, and he was saying like there are always going to be some people who are going to ask for. Larger cages or like improved conditions, but we have to ask for liberation because this is our comparative advantage. No one is going to do this. But no, this is not the case at all. in developing countries. Like, welfare work doesn't exist at all in many cases. I think mm. even more so in authoritarian ones. I think the situation is similar in Russia. Like, the welfare movement is very small, but still there are vegan advocates. I think there is a vegan movement in Turkey as well, and some. I think three organizations with full time staff uh, working on vegan okay. advocacy, so um this kind of work, like farmed animal welfare work, needs support as well. if it is not supported, it is not going to exist. so mm. this is something I want to make clear mm.
0: How does that feel running an organization where you are out on a limb? I know in other countries um organizational leaders have really benefited from having a shared goal and a shared sense of, um, you know, sometimes like good cop, bad cop relationships that they can play off one another. Um, how does it feel being, I can imagine it feeling quite isolated and do you feel like you do have access to a community that you can learn from and they can learn from you and and have support from, um, Or or does it feel like, um, yeah, you're kind of out on your own?
2: So uh, I think the international community was extremely, extremely supportive. I'm so glad for whoever is responsible for establishing this culture, I think on international level, because also there is no competition for same volunteers, same media attention. Like uh, the organizations from other countries were so helpful in so many different ways, emotionally giving out advice, offering mentorship, um, mm. allowing us to use their software for campaigning and so on. Just the Mercy Merciful Animals, Animal Equality, uh, Anima International, Scenology Animal, all of them were super helpful and uh, really Great. feeling, it really made me push much more forward uh, in the early stages of our work where we're just new people and needed some support in the community, I think uh that part of things are great and in turkey yes there is definitely a problem of like we can't have this good cop bad cop relations that other countries have we feel like we have to do everything on our own mm. and uh both getting relationships with companies and also just heavily campaigning against them and trying to do these things all at once it's it's tricky it's difficult like i'm currently more focused on uh, training new people and uh, encouraging them to start their own organizations for that reason and
0: right.
2: so
1: like new new organizations in turkey is that right so you don't yeah. want like, like a yeah. new one to play either a good cop or a bad cop and you do the other work
2: yeah like not not only a good cop bad cop thing but also like um just want to spread ideas maybe without trying to get uh, results just building the community of Mm. uh, animal activists in turkey so uh, there are lots of new things that could be done and we feel like trying to defend all of them will uh, hurt our goals Uh, so yeah this is something i think about and it feels a little bit isolated in the beginning, but someone has to start this work from scratch. So uh, <laughs> there was only one vegan a hundred years ago. So uh, <laughs> someone has to start spreading the ideas. Yeah.
0: Right. <laughs> And you spoke about uh, general public opinion. I'm really interested in this um, with the cats and dogs and not having um, euthanasia there for um, sick animals. I guess that's a really different angle to, as you said, in in other parts of Europe. Um, So in terms of general public opinion, you seemed optimistic that the public are uh, concerned about cage-free and generally supportive of the campaigns is that across the board do you have any stats or like understanding of general population consensus um on your campaigning and particularly maybe the campaigning style where it's quite um you know sometimes aggressive you like campaigning Mm -hmm. against big big brands like what's the general impression Mm -hmm. of um of what those campaigns are, are doing in the country
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we have succeeded in adding uh, three questions to a monthly survey, in person survey that's conducted by one of the most prestigious research companies in Turkey that do monthly polling. And the text of the question indicated that the industrial cage systems confine animals in small spaces, but the eggs from these systems are also cheaper. And there were questions about would you support banning these systems. And 76% said they would support banning uh, cage systems, which is quite high compared to many other countries. And uh, there was also a note about price change in the question as well. So we were surprised by that and encouraged. And as I said, there is still a lack of data. But what I can say is uh, in countries where there is no work in animal welfare, Uh, people don't know what is going on at all, and they haven't been exposed to the realities of the industry. So there is a lot of low-hanging fruit in many countries, I think, because what I hear from people in France or United States is 20 years ago, their undercover investigations would get lots of media coverage and interest and uh, impressions nowadays. No one seems to care anymore, no one is interested. Like we haven't passed this stage yet. People don't know anything at all and they get very shocked and intrigued and uh, about the facts about what they eat and share it widely and react very uh, in very strong ways. So we quickly succeeded. And I th- the, our very first campaign in 2018 uh, managed to gather 130,000 signatures. And we didn't spend any money on this. We were volunteers. Uh, Wow. So it was impressive. And I think because we are currently filling a gap uh, in the space, we're offering some very valuable new information that people want to get more of and haven't been able to get from somewhere else. So I think there is a low-hanging fruit in many other countries where there is no animal welfare work. But people are interested in uh these things it's like a scandal to them. They it is definitely not what they expect. Uh it's definitely not their expectations and these changes happened in the last twenty years in our countries, twenty twenty five, whereas in Europe in United States they started in nineteen fifties or something. So right. uh I think there is a potential for very quickly gathering public support and uh, getting supporters just by putting out the message of these animals are treated horribly. You haven't seen these images. Let's see these
1: images. Mm. On that, do you guys do any uh, investigations or do other organizations in Turkey conduct investigations into farms? No, there is no history of investigation at all. It's just, there's
2: occasionally some workers from the industry send us videos and we share them uh and even those cases get quite a lot of public Mm. reaction and uh impressions they they get shared widely as well
1: Mm. and uh this is all we got no culture or history of undercover investigation is there a reason then you haven't done it if you think there is a bit of a gap and it does have actually quite a lot of traction
2: like we talked with our lawyer uh with this and no matter how we framed this or (laughs) envisioned it, said this is a no-go zone, don't go there, so we're not working on this to make this work really sustainable uh, for the next 30 years, 40 years or whatever. Mm. Uh, (laughs) But maybe things might change, and legislation change is very difficult, like if the legislation changes on our own, uh, maybe these things can be done, but currently our lawyer heavily advises against.
0: And can you protest outside companies? Are there any other kind of legal restrictions in the country that prohibit you from um, echoing the work of other organizations like THL, for example?
2: So we are much more restrained in what we can do. And we, uh, in our campaigning, we pass everything from legal approval, which is really uh, slowing our work a lot, but uh, yeah, also allows us to be very self-confident and be willing to push uh, until the end. Like there were some cases where the company made some legal threats, and we were like, no, we know that this is no problem at all. We did our <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, confident. Yeah, you <laughs> can stop us. And there was
2: even <laughs> one case: the lawyer of the company we seek uh, feedback from the companies that we won campaigns against, and uh, we talked with this lawyer six months after the campaign ended, uh, like what the, we could have done better. What we were thinking about the issue at the time and she said the company asked me to sue you and then i looked into it and couldn't find anything worthwhile so i recommended them to just reconcile and we were like yes this this approach is working but wow still for that we are more restrained and we don't use logos of the companies and we don't even
1: okay.
2: uh, accuse them of inflicting cruelty on animals we just accuse them of not having a public commitment uh on ending the K- supply of cage decks whereas other companies have like it is there are very high there is a very high bar of uh being able to provide proofs and having everything backed up everything we say has to have some kind of concrete proof and like we also use imperative sentences rather than declarative sentences like if you say <laughs> don't 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 support cruelty this doesn't imply that they are currently supporting cruelty we found a previous court case that says that because this is not a declarative sentences it doesn't count as libel so like it's just <laughs> jumping through lots this. of loops but uh, yeah. it, it has been working that that part is restrictive <laughs> on protests i think we had this advantage of cage-free work is very uh, mainstream and gets mainstream sport. Um, and we organize protests. People that join in our protests are not the usual suspects for the police. So like, like you don't look like that kind of people, just don't <laughs> get yourself messed up in this. Like, could you uh-huh. just, uh, go away, they say, and we don't resist at all. Like if the police comes and asks us to go away, we just say, Can we take a picture here for one minute? And we take a picture <laughs> and uh just go away. So we did some protests that weren't interrupted by the police at all. There were some cases the police came and wanted to really be like the good cop. Okay, you can stay here for 45 minutes but uh no longer and they tried to give advice like, you shouldn't have come here on Saturday, you should have come here on Friday, That would be more people. Like, I don't know what training they have gone through, what they were trying to achieve, but like really trying to be really nice and offering support and advice. Uh, there were those instances, there were instances we weren't interrupted, but half of the time I, th- I would say we get interrupted and the protest doesn't last longer than 20 minutes or something. So, uh, we stopped doing them because we couldn't get the value of directly reaching out to the customers of the company uh but we can get pictures like we can stand there for ten minutes and get pictures and share them on social media For that part, it is helpful, but like I hear the stories of uh activists from United States saying we would stand in front of the shop for six hours, and the people who tried to shop there would feel embarrassed and ashamed and we we can't do that sort of thing. We we never uh, able to stay that long. Uh, it's more like hit and run, mm.
1: right? well <laughs>
0: oh,
1: yeah, that, that's super interesting. Yeah, I, I think um, interesting that you're getting advice from a from a policeman. It's yeah, kind of nice. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a, a, and then, what do you think are some other key differences, either kind of political or cultural, social, uh, in carrying out farm animal work in Turkey versus other places? Because most of it obviously happens in Western Europe or the US, but are there any other key differences you think that make your work different or you have to act differently in some way?
2: Other ways. Interesting. I I think there is also one other thing, which is uh, the companies don't really read emails. Like you have to physically <laughs> visit them to make sure they understand <laughs> what you want from them. Even if we use bold texts and use very few sentences, making very clear what our ask is. Uh, in majority of cases, the companies we campaigned against didn't understand that the commitment we asked from them is for future and like uh, not something to be immediate. And this was never clear to the chief executives. So and when we announced that we would do campaigns in advance, they wouldn't even read that email. So I think... We benefited a lot from recently we started going to the headquarters of the company before we start the campaign. And we managed to get a meeting at that time and make it clear that they really understand us. So <laughs> I think that is one difference uh, is important to underline.
0: Unfortunately, I would say that's perhaps universal, I think, from uh, from doing cage 3 corporate <laughs> Past, it's amazing when you turn up to the meeting and you're like, yeah, yeah. And in like the first of 10 emails we sent and it's like, oh, no, I don't think we've uh, <laughs> don't it's like uh, ignorance or pretending like they've not received them. But, yeah, we I've definitely been in situations where you can just tell they have. it's actually fascinating to me how little knowledge sometimes the the executive teams have of their own supply chains or you know we've I've been in meetings in the past where I've had to explain the word broiler um you know and and what that actually (laughs) means eye-opener so you're definitely not alone there ever um but yeah it's interesting that you're going with other tactics obviously you really want them to read the emails and understand that you are going to campaign and what that means for their company so you know whilst it can be good sometimes if they haven't read them because they don't have time to respond or perhaps um yeah have any sort of um reaction to a campaign if you are wanting to them to engage in conversation and and ultimately make that commitment they're going to have to reply at some sense at some point so it's good that you're able to um yeah look for other ways to to try and engage them Mm.
2: yeah absolutely like the perceived costs of the transition are much higher than the real costs uh, from the perspective of the company and yeah. like it's just saying the truth and making sure they know the truth helps a lot because when they talk with their own egg producers they try to condition them into oh this thing is impossible actually like <laughs> no, not at all yeah. and you just yeah. have to tell them what things are like it's Also important to not oversell, but if we just say, okay, in the worst case scenario, this is like 30% price difference, uh, and this is the very worst case scenario, Uh, their expectations are like, oh, this is going to be twice as expensive, three times as expensive, and we have to do this immediately, and there will be no supply at all. It's important (laughs) to change that uh, perspective.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: Makes sense. Besides the corporate campaigns, I'm curious to hear about if you've ever – Consider doing kind of policy or more political work and how come you didn't end up taking the option or, or if you are doing anything like that
2: i think it is too early i think it will do more harm than good uh because like turkey is also very polarized uh, so mm. for ways you can also imagine like engaging with any kind of politician uh just speaking to them and making it clear that you spoke to them. We'll get you into a polarized debate immediately. And it is not like we have built enough power to change Lovia's laws yet. So uh, I don't think we're at that space. We need to do more work. And as this thing gets more mainstream and we have more larger uh, support base, we might be able to do it, but not our current priority. Makes
0: sense. Yeah. Did you say previously that you ask for feedback from the companies that you've campaigned against? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I'm really interested by this. I haven't um, heard of this before. I guess sometimes you make a, a pleasant rapport with a executive and maybe you can continue that relationship, but I've not heard of organizations kind of actively seeking feedback from the companies that they've campaigned against. Um, what have been the results of that? Is it is it surprising to the exec? I guess there's two questions. Is it surprising initially to the executives that you are campaigning against them? And secondly, as part of the um, feedback process, has there been anything that you've changed as a result of feedback you've received from the corporates?
2: Yeah, definitely. This visiting uh, firms in person uh, and going to physically their headquarters was something we changed uh, after getting this feedback. And Mm -hmm. That you should go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay. We only tried to reach out by phone and email before. Now we visit physically and it really makes a difference. Yeah. um, If it's unusual to them, it definitely is. There is no uh, organization that regularly campaigns against companies in Turkey at all. We are, I think, the only corporate campaigning organization in Turkey. Uh, I mean, of course, there are like, Um, labor unions that uh, occasionally sporadically do strikes and uh, try to ask for improved conditions and while doing that, do demonstrations and so on. And also Greenpeace sometimes campaigns against companies as well. This 2017 campaign was against chicken producers, for example. So there are some cases, but I think there is no other organization which is like, okay, we... Target the campaign against five companies this year, and like uh, doing the same thing over and over again, repeatedly and nonstop. I think they're alone in this, and so for that reason, they're very surprised, and they always have this thread of "You should have asked this nicely. if You did ask this nicely. We would have already done this now because they're now campaigning. We're not going to do this because we're never <laughs> going to negotiate with you, terrorists, and uh, like." We asked you nicely for two years, but...
0: (laughs) You (laughs) didn't read the the emails. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, funny.
1: (laughs) Cool. Maybe moving on to your future plans. Um, Yeah. So I think you mentioned you doing a bit of fish work, mainly because that was instigated by actually this large retailer who wanted to get into that. Is there anything else you're considering in terms of expanding into obviously lots of uh kind of western european us groups are now doing stuff on broilers is that on your radar are there other things on the radar uh broiler
2: not currently i think uh, because the companies we are going to work with for broilers are the exact same companies for cage free and uh it's going to complicate things and there is mixed progress on it as well like In France, huge progress. There are many other countries where there's huge progress. But in Mm. some other countries, it's more slow. And we are already uh, spread out quite thinly for our cage-free and fish welfare work. So I don't mind waiting five more years until we consider really doing broiler stuff. Mm. But um, other types of things, I'm more open to things that might support our work and also uh, chick culling campaigns before the other things chick culling campaigns that is something I think it might bring a lot of people to our site and is feasible Uh, I think it seems to be in a nice intersection of helping animals and also building the organization Mm. so chick culling campaign might be uh, something we might consider Uh, but I'm not sure what exactly is the effective altruist perspective on this, like campaigning against chick culling. Because like, are we quantifying deaths? Are we quantifying suffering? Like, mm. if it is the amount of lifetime affected, it's not that much. If it's the amount of the killing affected, then it is enormous. Like, I don't know. I don't know what is our uh, axiology on this, but uh, that's something I think will be helpful for building the organization. And apart from that, I'm more interested in uh, building a community of uh, pragmatic minded uh, activists in Turkey and making sure we also have this ecosystem that is similar to what people in the United Kingdom or United States have, than uh, other organizations doing cooperative work and filling different gaps in the space. Uh, I think. I'm more interested in that kind of thing. So currently investing a lot in writing blog posts and
1: uh, producing educational materials and spreading them out. Nice. Very cool. Uh, I think the chick cutting thing is something really interesting. I've also been thinking about this. I don't think I have a good idea, a good solution, but I think another benefit is like, I actually wasn't sure if it made things cheaper because in a way it's like, oh, if the, the things about Innovo sexing actually means there's like less waste products to dispose of than maybe it's actually cheaper for egg companies but actually someone said no the technology is quite expensive so it'll we'll increase the cost of egg production which will then also potentially make people less likely to buy eggs so maybe that's the same kind of like theory of change or i don't know if you know much more about that I, uh, yeah i
2: think so for but better welfare reforms should always increase the costs i think uh it's definitely helpful if it there is a huge public support and it increases the costs at the same time. Mm. But like if it is cost neutral and it also helps animals, I think people underestimate the lags that can happen in uh, keeping up with the technological progress uh, in the animal industry. For example, like there has been recent research uh, for shrimps that indicate that ice talk ablation doesn't have any uh positive effects on profitability at all then mm. after this research has been announced there have been some huge commitments to mm. end this practice but still not all producers are committed there are still loads of animals that are still suffering this and the producers are not actually aware of this at all and uh, someone specifically aware of this knowledge reaching out to all of them and making sure that uh, they change their practices can still be helpful, even though mm. it makes no difference to the costs. And um, But still, for chick culling, what I observe is the industry is pushing back against this. And for example, in France, uh, there is an attempt to backtrack from uh, the recent legislation to end chick culling. So I think uh, the industry is not going to adopt this on their own without pressure. And mm. this seems to be an indication of their increases in costs. Mm.
0: We looked into this uh, as an intervention at Animal Ask as well. And I would recommend anyone looking into it to, to get in touch with George because there's also some um, challenges because often uh, the male chicks that have been culled are fed to um the exotic pet trade um and so there was a sense that perhaps if that's then swapped out for something like insects that are actively farmed to then feed the um the pets at least like the male chicken, or byproduct. so it could be worth um getting in touch with him and and seeing what the results of that look into that was
1: maybe i'll put a contact email or something for that uh, yeah in, yeah, in exactly. the description of the show notes
2: thanks for doing that work it's really important and um, i think there is huge progress that has been done uh, and it's important to know uh what exactly it entails to so see whether we can replicate it in all of the countries.
0: Okay. So I think you've been really open throughout about mistakes that you've made along the way. And I really appreciated those comments. I wonder if there's anything else that sticks out as a a mistake that you would, um, share with us to help others to avoid making the same mistakes in the future. Is there anything else other than what you've already said within the podcast so far?
2: Yeah, sure. I think, um, there's a nice article in 80,000 R's website on this, and I haven't come across this until second year of my work in this, and I wish I uh, read it much sooner. And It's titled, Ways People Trying to Do Good Accidentally Make Things worse and How to Avoid Them, and it really resonated a lot with the mistakes I have made, so uh, I think people should look into it when they start this kind of work and it is not listed in animal advocacy resources as well Uh, it's because it's not animal advocacy specific but i think uh, it can really apply to animal advocacy as well so i would say i think i already mentioned the mistakes i made in hiring and also i think there is one thing about founding organizations in the age of internet is internet is forever and when you build an organization you also try to build moral authority and it is not like a financial startup or startup selling products where you can change your product and keep testing and testing and testing and see what works uh you cannot Change things. Okay, let's see. Let's see which message really resonates with people. Try over and over and over again. Like there are limits to how much you can change. Uh, I think it is more worthwhile to invest in small scale uh, work, just creating a website, doing presentations to small groups, uh, without putting them out to internet, and see how different types of people react and getting lots of feedback and. Mm. Just adapting them in advance uh, because when we start these campaigns, they get viral quite quickly. They just
0: Mm.
2: uh, explode and suddenly 2 million people have already seen your website. And like, uh, it's not something we are really prepared for, especially Mm. as people who are just starting their careers and uh, just starting this type of work. And it comes with a lot of risks about communication. And as I said, the strength of the organization comes from authority, credibility uh, they have. So I think it's better to invest uh, in advance uh, about how people react to things in small groups and have a sense of uh, how things will be perceived in the future.
1: Right. Nice. I think it's pretty sweet. I think it seems like a good takeaway is like, yeah, like iterate, put things out more to get feedback and do this as much as you can before you scale. I think that's a really useful yeah. lesson. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, we try to ask everyone uh, some questions. i that's more like general about the animal advocacy movement. And so what do you think is a view that most animal advocates would disagree with, but you, you hold or you believe in? I think
2: people in the animal advocacy space should take long-termism more seriously, especially... The parts about their envisioning of the future, like they, there are some intelligent people that keep thinking about this and work full time on this, and they say something like an alien invasion is coming, and we are ignoring this altogether. Like uh, they say, within our lifetime, there will be a huge transformative change in our society, and this is not reflected in our planning at all, which seems very odd to me. Like it is like. Uh, if you if you believe in this story, then you work on these issues. If you don't believe in the story, you work in animal advocacy, which doesn't seem to be a nice split. Like there should also be some people. Okay, these stories might have some credibility, and if they have some credibility, then how we should plan around things this doesn't happen at all, which I find quite strange. Uh, and I think this is something I disagree with many advocates in the space.
1: Mm. I think that's a great point. I I, I think I always think the same with climate people. I think it's like all these AI experts people are saying, like existential risk people are saying we might have transformative AI that could speed up all innovation and technology in the next decade, decades. And it's like, wow, this could surely affect basically every other part of our life. And no one's really talking about it. And this could totally change alternative proteins or how we treat animals. So yeah, I totally agree. This is a huge thing. And
0: what is a animal-related view you've changed your mind on recently um, and what influenced that change?
2: I think, I don't know, I feel like we are buying incrementalism in all types of areas far too quickly uh, as a moment. Like, this question is very difficult and there is very low, high-quality data compared to global health where, where like, Dozens of professors from Harvard University, Stanford University already wrote articles on. We don't have this. We don't have the data. We just infer, infer incrementalism in a lot of things. And then recently this election results in Netherlands changed my perspective a little bit further because the farmer party there got 20% of the votes, around 20%. And they were so annoying and disturbing. They just uh, did much worse things than what other disruptive activists do. They put out uh, animal excrement on the streets, they blocked the entrances of supermarkets, they went in front of the politicians' houses and just came there with their cows and just, they were making a mess everywhere and they got 20% of the votes. The public actually rewarded this. I don't know, that there, there is something complicated going on there and mm. it is not like one recipe works everywhere. And I, like people, I think, infer too quickly that I am get, getting annoyed by this. So if I get annoyed by this, then it's, the public will react negatively and it will hurt the cause as well. But I don't know. I think this is a very difficult question. And uh, I'm more inclined to be more agnostic on this rather than uh, erring towards one side. Hmm.
0: Very interesting. I definitely want to look into that.
1: Yeah, the, the farmers' protest stuff is crazy. Yeah, they're, like like everyone was saying, they're taking tractors to block like supermarket distribution centers and they're burning stuff in the street and yeah, w- winning loads of votes. So clearly, you know, you don't yeah, put people don't off that so much if you're... Yeah. And, and yeah, So this is, it, for people who don't know, in response to a backlash where the, the Dutch government's trying to have a reduction of livestock numbers to reduce ammonia and nitrogen pollution in the country. So the farmers okay. are kind of up in arms about this. Yeah. For um, the
0: cl- uh, climate angle
1: yeah i, I believe so yeah Cop- and air pollution as well i think it's just really bad the amount of nitrogen they have uh, uh, I, I think
2: there is an animal angle as well i think the animal part of there is also strong strongest party in the world yeah. i think four percent yeah. of the votes or something
1: wow yeah it's pretty good yeah fair enough that's pretty good um cool well maybe kind of the opposite of that is what's one bit of news that you're grateful about or excited to hear that you've heard recently
2: the live export ban in Brazil, one of my favorite countries in animal advocacy. Like The court decision has such a beautiful text as well. We're currently recognizing the dignity of animals as individual persons. Like, wow, this is great stuff. It's very unfolding. Like, wait, wait, uh, which
1: country was that? I missed it, sorry.
2: Brazil. There, there has been a recent court case banning live exports in Brazil.
1: Oh, uh, yes. I it can, can still be appealed.
2: That. It is not the end of the story yet but the text of the decision is beautiful and uh, very strong and also it was a huge exporter it also affects quite a lot of animals so very happy to see that
1: wow very cool
0: nice and do you have any media recommendations for listeners any books or blog posts that have been particularly influential to your journey so far
2: I think on the management side, like Managing to Change the World, it is repeated everywhere, but it's such a such a helpful book that uh, it is important to make sure everyone reads it. And also Building Digital Power uh, hmm. is also a very, very helpful guy. It really uh, is a gold mine that has so much in it. Uh, these are the two books I benefited most from, Building Digital Power and also managing to change the world. Uh, many people should learn more about them. But apart from that, uh, I think we also need, by the way, more books on the animal advocacy work that we're doing. There's currently a lack of material explaining why we're doing welfare campaigns, what are the effects of the welfare campaigns, mm. uh, what are the criticisms, what are the replies. You don't have this. Currently, mm. uh, like the, the grilled explains this, but it is more like a narrative uh, explaining story kind of thing. But it's, there is no detailed uh, assessment of welfare work in book form. I think we need to produce more books that uh, explain what we're doing. Mm.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think that there's a whole dearth of information about why animal advocates are doing a bunch of our campaigns why we should work on this stuff and yeah i think maybe another analog you mentioned to like the long-termist communities they're pumping out loads of books and thought leadership and podcasts and blogs and we're just kind of flailing around with peter singer's book from like 50 years ago it's like come on i'm sure we can make (laughs) yeah there's enough exactly exactly
0: Just to let everybody know as well, um, we're starting to put the resources in the uh, description section of the podcast. So if there's anything that was mentioned during the episode, you'll be able to find links and um, yeah, uh, the the links off to those particular articles or um, websites, etc. in the description. Hmm.
1: And I think this is our final question. So it's how can people get more involved with your work, and how do they find you online? Are you hiring? Do you need volunteers? And yeah, where can people read more about you?
2: Yeah, sure. If you happen to be a Turkish person uh, listening to this this podcast, definitely apply. You're we are really a rare gem that we shouldn't miss. (laughs) And uh, apart from that, for people listening outside of Turkey, uh, always they could donate to us from. Uh, our website. And if they feel like they have experience and competence in some aspects of organizational management, I am always willing to get advice and uh, listen to people and uh, try to adapt because I'm really new to this. It's been three years since I started working on this full time and many things I pick up on the ground. And uh, it's nice to not Explore the Americas from scratch and just learn from others' experiences. So if you have such experience and uh, expertise, please advise us and tell us what to do
0: amazing well thanks so much Emery. it's been really interesting to hear your points of view as i said before i think you've been really candid with your um sharing of challenges which i think is particularly useful um i've thoroughly enjoyed the episode so thank you just so much for coming on and and talking about your work in turkey
2: Mm, thank you thank you for having me it was a pleasure